good morning again, and may the Lord bless you. What a uh, joyful time of celebration uh, this has been for us as a church. I believe over this weekend, just celebrating uh, uh, both uh, remembering the death and celebrating the resurrection and what all that means. And so we um, uh, we remind ourselves often here, and I think it's worth stating again that the cross is at the center, uh, the death and burial and resurrection that's a, is at the center of our theology. It's at the center of the gospel. And Paul reminds us of that. And Mike brought that out as well. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, and um, I would invite you to open them with me to the book of Revelation chapter number five. We uh, have been going through a um, series in the gospel of John. I take a break, uh, take a break this week break, break, whatever, and uh, take a break this week and, and look at uh, just really a, a follow-up with what we considered Friday night for those of you who are with us as we looked at the, uh, the great sorrow uh, and the depths of Christ's humiliation. Uh, and I, I think as we come resurrection morning, we want to see the outcome of that. Uh, right? He's, he will prosper. His work will prosper. Isaiah 53, as we consider that Friday night. And, and so I, I know Revelation 5 is somewhat ambitious, um, but I think it is um, greatly encouraging. I hope it is for you this morning and challenging as we look at it uh, together. And so what I want to do is uh, I just want to read it for you, read the 14 verses, and then we'll uh, look at it together and just consider uh, this magnificent uh, account and description of our Savior. The Bible says, And then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within on the back and sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look in it, into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took a scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I look, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Well, Father, this is your word. This is something we need to see and be reminded of. I pray that you would just have eyes to see that and ears to hear even this morning as we gather together. And praise your holy name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we give a lot of time and attention to Jesus throughout our church calendar, and much of it is focused around his humiliation, his coming to earth. We Think of his manger scene in his uh, low estate as he was born to parents of poverty and, and then this backwater town that he grew up in. Uh, we give our thoughts to his humiliation, his suffering, and it is right we should do those things. And I was even thinking, uh, reflecting on Isaiah 53 yesterday, how docile the the, the leaders of his day and the Roman authorities thought he was as they carried away and did whatever they wanted to with him as they abused him. I think it is safe to say that there has been no one more misunderstood and taken the wrong way than Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, the people of his day claimed he had a demon. His own family at one point thought he was crazy and went to the crowd to try to pull him out as he was teaching. His brothers did not believe in him until he rose from the dead. His disciples, as loyal as they were, they even had their own limitations, didn't they? We can only go so far. And at the end, in his darkest hour, they all fled. And we can even look in our day at the misunderstanding that we have of Jesus. We've heard throughout history him being modeled as a great role model, as a moral or ethical teacher, someone who has set a standard which we should try to follow. He is a magnificent teacher, a rabbi, a revolutionist, an extremist. He is the first created being, if you're into some of those uh, false Uh, views of what they claim to be Christianity. Uh, He is a sub-God, so to speak, not the divine son. And so on it goes. You may even have your own thoughts or have had your own thoughts of who Jesus is, someone to be dismissed and overlooked. And it is I guess right when you think about it because as he came to earth, he came veiled in humility Uh, The divine Son who existed eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit in perfect union and community, Uh, he is born, he takes upon himself flesh in a human nature and he clothes himself not in regal dignity as we would tend to think he would do. He clothes himself in humility and And John, even as he declares the glory of Jesus Christ, he does so showing us his glory through through the miracles that he did and through his work, not through light emanating from his skin so that we might see something that we can't look at. But no, we're to consider what he did as he walked this earth and as he 
live this life. And we're to listen to the words in which he spoke as he preached to the kingdom of God. There, John says, we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we are not excused by any stretch of the imagination, but we are uh, in some ways limited because we see him through this veil of humanity. The disciples, at least three of them, had a glimpse, you might recall, on the Mount Transfiguration where God the Father in this encounter uh, up there unveils Jesus just a little bit where he is transformed and they see something of them that that leaves them dumbfounded. Actually, uh, that's when Peter uh, is most apt to speak, I think. Some of us have that same problem. But they see there's something different about this man than, than anyone else. Veiled his glory And so we come to the end of our Bibles and the passage that you have in front of you in the book of Revelation. And it's as if God wants us to to see him as we saw him Friday night, for those of you who are here in Isaiah 53, in all of his humility and all of the greatness of his suffering. But don't miss, all of that was a means to an end. That our mind and our eyes are meant to look beyond that and what that will bring. That that glory which Jesus himself prayed for, Moses desired as he was in the wilderness. I want to see your glory. And Jesus prays to the Father, Father, I want them to see my glory. That they may be with me and see the glory which thou hast given me because you have loved me from the foundation of the world. It is that glory of Christ, that vision of Christ, which occupies the book of Revelation. We come to it as some big mystery to be unsolved and a riddle to be worked out. And at the heart of it, we must understand this is ultimately a a vision, a revelation, singular, not of, of judgments and mysteries, although that's in there, but it is a revelation of the glory and splendor and majesty of Jesus Christ. In fact, this book in itself is a is a declaration of what Paul says in Philippians 2 as he was humbled to such a low estate. He will be exalted to such a high estate, high and lifted up. And and we will see every knee bow and every tongue confess him Lord to the glory of God the Father. In fact, when John begins the book of Revelation, he is overwhelmed because the very first thing he sees is Jesus Christ in such a amazing, such a, 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 a terrible vision that he falls at his feet as a dead man. And you find that in Revelation 1, which I would encourage you to read over as he sees him standing there among the church. Church, it is a good reminder, even as we come to Revelation 5, that Jesus Christ is magnificent beyond what we could describe. I find myself so limited 
both in my gifting and the accessibility of the English language to even unfold half of what is being said here, but nevertheless the joy of considering who he is for a moment. And that's what we come this morning uh, to consider the, the resurrection and what that unfolds uh, as we see him standing here in the midst of the center of everything. As the vision unfolds in chapter number five, it's connected with chapter four. And he begins here for us with a cosmic dilemma beginning in verse number one. But I want us to consider, look back in chapter number four as we look at this. He sets the stage of this dilemma. John is caught up into the heavens to see something magnificent. And here is a man who is who is a exiled to the Isle of Patmos in his old age, I believe somewhere in the 90s. Some of you can disagree with that if you want. Uh, that's fine. You're free to do that. Uh, but I believe somewhere in the AD 90s under the persecution of Rome, the church was. John was the last living apostle. And here as he is abandoned in his older age to hard labor on the Isle of Patmos, God brings him in this vision to see things which are so magnificent. And what he sees is a throne. God who is seated on a throne and and surrounded him, all that's going on in the throne room of heaven as God is seated there ruling and reigning over his creation. But notice at the end of Uh, Verse number four, what are they doing there? What is all of creation? What is all of the heavenly hosts doing there at the throne? They're worshiping and they're praising God who is ruling and reigning. Notice verse number nine, these living creatures and the interesting beings you see back filled with eyes and uh, different kind of animals and Uh, interesting study in itself. I think these angelic beings are a manifestation of the attributes of God, his wisdom, his power, his might, his omniscience. Uh, And and you can do some research on that. Verse number nine, whenever these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. And then he goes on in verse number 10, and the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Now, dear friends, as we gather this morning, do you know that It is God who's the creator of all things. Your very existence attributed to his will. You're here not by any accident or by any mistake, not just here in this building in that way, but your very existence in this world was created. You are created by God according to his will. You and I exist and we are created. And what you find in verse number 11, the 24 elders, uh, may be, it seems best to explain, a representation of the church of the Old and New Testament. Some may be angelic beings, a lot of division in the book of Revelation. But one thing is very clear is who is the center of attention. 
the creator of heaven and earth. And as they're praising to him all these things, honor and glory and power, they're not saying may you multiply in honor and glory and power because he cannot be added to or taken away from. This is what we might find in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms where the psalmist is is calling all of creation to come and declare the glory and the splendor of who this God is. We are reveling in the attributes of God and His power and might and glory and strength. And so we leave verse number 11 to this dilemma in verse number 5 because John then sees in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Scrolls, some of the longer scrolls in John's day would have been up to 34 feet long. Uh, Most people, when they did their copying or writing, they would write it as far as the scroll would take it and then they would start another book. Uh, Many scholars believe the book of Luke and the book of Acts is two volumes because Luke just ran out of paper. And so he just had to grab another scroll and that's why we have it the way we have it. But there are, for legal purposes, if you wanted to contain everything to be said, in one document. Microsoft Word didn't exist in those days. I think you know that. And there was no cloud. Well, there was clouds, but not like the clouds we use. Then they would turn the scroll over and write on the back. Because of the way the paper would go, because the inside was glued to an outside layer and and they would be going different directions, it was harder to write on the outside of the scroll because it would mess with the, the quill that you were writing with. So most people did not write on the back of the scroll. But here we see this scroll that was in the right hand of God the Father, who's speaking of in chapter number four, sitting on his throne, is filled with information. Nothing more could be added to it. It it is a complete document, complete writing that he holds in his hand. Not only is it complete in all that it contains, but it is sealed with seven seals. Now the number seven, even throughout the book of Revelation, this chapter is a number of perfection or completion, creation, seven days. And so in apocalyptic literature, Oftentimes, these numbers present a significance of showing the the completion of a thing, the perfection of a thing. This book was sealed. It was a legal document. It was something of a will or a title deed. It was something that, that had legal binding and whatever the book contained was sealed up and any of its actions or gifts or declarations would not be binding until the seals were broken. And only those who had the proper authority or the proper right could open the seals of this scroll in the hand of the Father. Now some suggest this was the Lamb's book of life. I don't believe that is the case. I think D.A. Carson is helpful in his statement on this. This book in God's hands, this is his purpose. 
his purposes for judgment and blessing. This is his plan, his his outworking of his providence, his his desire, his his will, which will bring everything to its appointed end. This is his de- declaration, the the redemptive work coming to its fullness. All of it is contained in this book, and it is as if this book is sealed up. And so we see in verse number two that, that this proclamation is sent forth by this mighty angel who is worthy to come and take this book from the hand of him who sits on the throne. Who's worthy? Not only to take the book, because in our minds we think, okay, I could just go take it. That's all you can do. Who is worthy? Who has the strength and the, the ability? Who has the integrity and, and the perfections not only to approach the throne of God in such closeness, but to, to carry out what is written within this book? Who can receive such sovereignty over all of creation? Who can do it? Verse number three says, a search had been made and throughout the angels in all of heaven and all of God's divine beings, but no one was found. Not Gabriel, not Michael, not, not the cherubims or seraphims, not any of those were found worthy to open the book. And, and he calls throughout the earth who is worthy, what nobleman, what king or what good person can open the book. But no... No one is found. What about those who are in death? Maybe here he's referring to what about the the dead saints or the dead great men of yesterday? Or maybe he's saying what demon? What devilish power is able to come and exercise such authority and approach the throne of God? And yet all of them come back. There is none. And John, you see here in verse number four, in his response to that, this bitter cry, he weeps loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls or to look into it. Don't you see the dilemma? The church, in it, it, under that great weight of persecution, this kind of redemptive plan to be exercised, the vindication of the righteous, all that God has planned to do seems to be at this moment, in John's eyes, sealed up and frustrated. Or is it? John is weeping loudly because no one is found worthy to open The scrolls and the will of God will not be carried out. Will Satan win? Will sin win? Will the wicked win? So you see the dilemma that the vision sets before us. I want you to notice, secondly, verse number five. I want you to notice the worthy king. And one of the elders said to me, and a rebuke, no doubt, weep no more. Why? He says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. A search made throughout heaven and no one is found. A search made 
throughout earth and no one is found, a search made throughout under the earth and in the depths of creation and no one is found. And, And at his weeping, the angel says, there is one. There is one. I could say for us this morning as we look at the world around us and the chaos that's going on and remind you there is one. There is one who is worthy. There is one who is honorable. There is one who is in control. There is one who is seated on the throne of God. And that's what he is saying here. He is exalting him high and lifted up. That language of of above above the, the dead and above the kings of the earth and above the angelic being, one stands and rises above them all. There is a worthy one. That's what he's saying here. And notice as he describes him, he's a lion of the tribe of Judah. I don't know how many of you have ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. The beaver is talking to these children about Aslan. And that scene, they get kind of a little bit nervous because he says he's a lion. They said, oh, really? I should like to meet a lion, one of them says. And the other one says, is he safe? He's not safe, but he is good. I think Lewis caught something with that. John is told of a lion, the the king, that regal majesty, that ferociousness, the power, the might of a lion, the tribe of Judah. And going back to that Genesis promise of uh, you are a, a lion's cub, and from you the scepter will not depart speaking to Judah as Jacob blesses him before he dies. Well, here the lion cub is all grown up to his fullest majesty and might. Not only does he speak of him in this way, in in the sense of his power and his strength, he shares with us the reason that he is worthy is by divine right, his his royal lineage and the promise of God being the root of David of the tribe of Judah. God making that promise to David that your son will build me a house and his kingdom will not end. We hear that promise is fulfilled in this one who has come to take the scroll who is worthy but not only because he is of royal lineage, because he himself has conquered. And you know the reference back in the book of First Corinthians chapter number 15, where he says, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? That's swallowed up in victory. Here he stands in all of his power in all of his might, not as one defeated, not as one one crushed down, but as one who has gained great victory, who has conquered. What has he conquered? Death and hell and every opposition that stood in his way to redeem and bring reconciliation. I like that at the end of verse number five. Look at it with me so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. No one is found, but there's one, and he can. And notice verse number six. It's almost as if it takes you off guard, doesn't it? 
we hear of the lion of the tribe of Judah, and if we look to him, what awesome and wonder that be overwhelmed in his presence. And, and yet when John looks at him, what does he see? But notice where he looks first in verse number 6, between the throne and the four living creatures. He's been occupied with everything that's going around the throne, but what he sees now is as he looks towards the sinner, and really that's an encouragement for us. As we see all the things in our peripheral vision of all the messed up and broken things in this world, a lot of that is corrected. At least we find courage and strength when we look to the center of the throne. That is where we'll find the Lamb standing as though it had been slain. The Lamb is that of a small lamb having been slain, but notice it isn't a dead animal presented before the Father. All of this speaking of his death is in past tense, the one who had died, who had been slain, but now he is standing in great victory, receiving great honor and worth. That's what the resurrection is about, isn't it? Death had its day, it had its moment, (laughs) but its day was also its own death and its own demise. Those who had been slain, have you ever wondered, will you recognize him when you get to heaven? You ever wonder if you would be so overwhelmed by his presence and his look? Will I know who he is? But isn't there comfort in knowing that he will bear the marks of his suffering for all eternity, not as a badge of shame, but as a, as a mark of glory and great love? whereby when we see him, we will be overwhelmed and amazed and give glory to him for the great cost of our own redemption. How will we know him? Because he will bear the marks of his love that he has given towards us, that he bears towards us. Though he had been slain, with seven horns speaking of his perfect strength and his might or his power. Uh, That uh, image is in Daniel as was read this morning all throughout Daniel's uh, writings and seven eyes speaking of his perfect judgment. He will rule and reign perfectly. He will not err. There are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Maybe a reference to the Holy Spirit speaking of this trinity all involved in the exaltation of Christ. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. What an amazing picture. Especially if you see such horrific scenes of Calvary. There's many reasons why we don't have a crucifixion with Christ on it. One, the cross is central to everything we do, but because every time we look at it, it is a direct reminder that he is no longer there. In all of that veiled humility, in all of that veiled suffering, the outcome of that was, was unveiled glory, which you and I long to see. That is, in one sense, the inheritance, the reward of those who know him. But notice... Thirdly, not only the worthy 
king, but notice thirdly, the spontaneous worship. I like verse number seven. I did not mention it, but I, I, I just think about that. He is not backwards or shy to go do what he needs to do. The Bible said in the Gospels, he set his face towards Jerusalem like a flint, unmoved and undeterred from his will. And so he will set his face like a flint, has set his face like a flint to carry out the will and plan of God to bring everything to its appointed end. He will not delay. Verse number 8 speaks of this spontaneous worship. How does heaven respond to the exaltation, the unveiling of the Son in this manner? And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. D.A. Carson in a statement on this said, this is in his estimation something similar to banjos. So I guess he just wanted his audience to understand that this is a a foot-stomping, joyous music. So he said, how can you be sad in the the midst of banjos? I'm from Tennessee, so that kind of was nice uh, to hear that from Carson. But what you see is this joyful celebration. There's a solemnity in all of this. There's a, a soberness to be sure, but, but, but there is joy in his presence, his fullness of joy, unexplainable joy where heaven itself will break forth in worship and singing. Uh, the, you see the beast and the 24 elders falling down before him with harps and musical instruments and golden bowls full of incense with the prayers of the saints offering up to him because every prayer is offered up by him and he will see to their fullness and completion. But notice verse number 9, how they worship him, a new song. Now think about this. The words that are written in your Bible would have never and would never be sung had there not been a cross. This scene, all of it hinges upon his suffering and resurrection. Oh, he is mighty and he is great beyond describing. He's just saying to the world. He, he could be, the son could be worshipped as we see in the, the way the fathers worship in verse number 11 for being the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the possessor of all things. The Bible says that in Colossians. But here, uh, the, the heart of worship is, is not just in his deity in that sense, but in his redemptive work. Notice they begin, worthy are you, only you, out of all of existence and and all that there is and could be and might be, you're the worthy one to take the scroll and open its seals. For you alone were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Isn't that remarkable? You're worthy to take the scroll. But why will he stand in sovereign authority? It is because he gave his life to ransom a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You alone are the one who is able to unfold human history and bring everything to its appointed end because you were slain and your blood has ransomed a people for God. 
There's something to be said that we are ransomed not for ourselves, but for God. To live to God. To be in fellowship and communion and unity. To, to receive the life and the joy and the fullness and the presence of God in our life both now and in and, and the future. Heaven itself will be heaven because in the midst of it God will dwell with his people. This idea of God just saving us and getting us out of trouble and just letting us do our own thing is not a biblical idea. And every tongue and tribe and language and people and nation is if to say the entirety of the, the diversity of the human population will be present worshiping God, worshiping this worthy king. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign forever. Oh, the joy of the Lord the anticipation that what waits the saints. This dread of heaven and this idea of solemnity and, and whatever else we have kind of imagined uh, misses, misses the, the biblical description here. Unspeakable fullness you and I will feel without the abs or with the absence of all of the dread and guilt and emptiness that we feel today. We worship now and we do so with one hand tied behind our back. But there, having been removed from the curse of sin and, and in our flesh, we will be in a glorified state, worshiping Him with such glory and honor as God intended us to do from the very beginning. All because the Lamb who was slain has ransomed us by His blood. In fact, it is so marvelous that the angels have to join in. Verse number 11, and Then I look and heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, as if to say billions and billions of angelic hosts joining in. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Seven attributes in their praise showing that he is perfectly to be perfectly praised. These are not, may he be added these things to his nature and character. Not may these things be his that weren't his. These are his already. He possesses these and the angels are just acknowledging it. All wisdom is yours all power is His, all might is His, all honor is His, all glory and blessing is His. And we will see it. And when you're looking and speaking to a church and that is struggling and its last apostle is exiled on the Isle of Patmos and the world's most ferocious, fiercest power has it out against you, they need to be reminded of the magnitude and the magnificence of who this Savior is who has called them out of darkness and into light. 
uh, this one that many had suffered for him and fed to the beast for. Uh, their, their brothers and sisters need to be reminded that in the midst of all of this gruesome, there is a worthy one who is sovereign, ruling, and will bring justification and vindication and righteousness and all blessing promised to those who are his. And you and I need that great reminder now. We live in a world that is submerged in wickedness and violence and, and just the most ridiculous, unimaginable grossness of morality. More and more any kind of Christian inclination or thought or declaration is being pushed further and further from the center of public life. It would, in one sense, to be bleak, seem like the church had had its day and its day is over. And yet we come to the book of Revelation and we find out that his day, Christ's day, is not over. He is ruling and reigning and he is magnificent. And you and I need that encouragement. And as we look at the world in all of its blackness, we might find in the midst of it that hope and that courage to be steadfast and immovable because he is alive and well and worshipped with all the angels and anticipating the day in which we see this for our own selves. What reward for faithfulness he offers to his people. Notice even he ends this in verse number 13, kind of giving us this climactic scene of Philippians chapter number 2, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess him Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, and I heard in every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. It is right for God's creation to worship him. It is right for his subjects to give glory and honor to him. And one day, not one person who has ever existed in the cosmos will, will go without acknowledging the magnificence and the glory and the magnitude of the Son. Every tongue will confess. God will bring the dead back to stand before him, both small and great, and everyone in all of their might and all of their, uh, their lowness will say, equally thou art God, thou art Lord. All of creation, the climax of it all. When God unveils to everyone, the beauty and the splendor and the glory which was the sons that he had with the father from before there ever was anything made. And we, we get a glimpse of that, the Bible says, with unveiled faces we enter into his word. Behold, the glory of the Lord are being changed from one degree of glory to another in Second Corinthians. We get a glimpse as we look at his book and wonder what it must be like on that day when he is fully revealed. There's a song by a group, Grey Havens. It has a line in it that's interesting, and they talk about when these foolish roads become wise. 
speaking of the roads of the gospel, the foolishness of God to those who are perishing, but one day everyone will acknowledge the wisdom of God in his gospel work. One day we will all stand together both from the terrible darkness of the demonic forces to the great glorious angelic beings and everything in between will give praise and glory to God. And that's what he's saying. Let everyone, everything come and praise him, knowing that blessing and honor and glory and might forever is his because he is the worthy king of it all. He is at the center of what's going on in heaven right now. Do you know that? He's at the center of it all. How could you ever be cold or indifferent towards him? How could you ever play with Christianity in such a manner to where treat him in a casual manner? Take it or leave it, come and go. Walk your your Christian life in such a loose manner to where nothing matters, your heart is cold towards him. How could we ever live in such a way with such a glimpse of one like this? How should we not, through seeing him in a passage like Revelation 5, having our minds set on the reality of the glory who is, how should we not be strengthened in our walk and in our stride and, and in our devotion and dedication to him? Romans 12, 1 and 2, that's what that's all about. How should we not, seeing the magnificent, the worthiness of him, give ourselves all over again? Serving him, loving him. How should we not even now be praising him? Is that way with you? Is that the center of your heart? Is he at the center of your focus? Is he center of your worship? It is this sovereign Savior who lives, who is on the throne, who will carry out all of God's plans. But I should ask you this question. Will you be there in celebration? Will you be one of the ones who claims with such a loud and joyous cry for you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation? Will you be there? And this is the day in which God has given us the gospel and the mandate to go preach the gospel into the nations. That we should turn from our sins and set our sights on Jesus, put our faith and trust in him. He would forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from our unrighteousness. That's what this day is all about, isn't it, Easter? That he died for our sins on Friday to, to be done with that, to face the judgment of those things. He rose on, on Sunday morning to show that he conquered those things and everything else he promised to us, which is eternity and life and future and hope can be ours. You must turn from your sins and turn towards Christ by faith. Will you be there with the multitude shouting and singing? Well, the only assurance you can have of that is turning to Christ, and I would encourage you to do that even now. Pray with me.
Father, we thank you. Thank you for your great love for us. How can we imagine such a magnificent scene as what we have read? How could we even grasp a, a fraction of it? How casual we have been in, in our Christian walk and Christian living like nothing matters and we just go on about taking nothing serious when it comes to the things of the Lord. He is the most magnificent thing in all of existence. Pray that you would give us eyes to see how we love him, Lord, and and yet we know not even nearly enough how we long to see him. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would even strengthen our longings. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that have not put their faith and trust in you. That even now, seeing the splendor and the magnificence of this Christ, that they would humble themselves and cry out to God even at this moment. I love how your word tells us that they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I pray that would be the case. Lord, be with us this day as we celebrate, as we reflect in our conversations, in our meals. And Lord, let us celebrate worshiping. Worshiping him who is worthy in Jesus' name. Amen.